Welcome to Design for Voice. Today, our topic is going to be covering inclusive design and how we can incorporate all people and all walks of life into our voice experiences as we develop them. I'm your host, Jeremy Wilkin, and today I'm joined by Diana Daibo. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you give us a bit of your background in the voice space and how you came to be a voice designer? Sure. Um, so I am a Brazilian American voice designer, and right now I work at a digital product design consultancy in Chicago called Grand Studio. And at my current job, we um, so we specialize in solving kind of messy problems for pretty big companies, and most of the time we're either getting brought in to fix an underperforming product or service or create something from scratch. And it's really kind of ambiguous. So um, usually what we're creating is like these solutions that are rarely one channel or one type of design. And I get to work with um, a bunch of designers to create more like holistic systems for which I'm usually the person jumping in for voice. And I kind of got into this through, um, I have a playwriting degree and I worked in entertainment for a while and I was doing production and script writing work for a bunch of different companies, including Blue Man Group and Animal Planet. And eventually found my way to Chicago where I was doing a lot more of commercial work. And from there, I kind of lost, um, <laughs> lost a little bit of meaning in my life when I was making like Sarah Lee Turkey commercials and found my way into health tech where I was working as a content designer. And as soon as they had some voice products come in line, I started working on those and really found that that was like the perfect marriage of everything that I had done up until that point that made me feel like I was delivering something of value to the world and still getting to write dialogue all day long. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, I love having a story where it's bringing all of your, your skills together and finding this alternative uh, path that still utilizes those skills in, in new interesting ways, which is how many of us, I think, have found our way into voice over time by taking things that we've gotten from another place uh, and bringing them to the table to voice. So thank you for joining me today. And we, we're going to talk about inclusive design. But before we dive into that too much, I want to maybe define the term a little bit more. So what do you mean by the term inclusive design? And how do we think about that with voice? Yeah, um, I think so there, there is a definition for inclusive design. Um, I tend to think of it like basically taking the opportunity to include users at every design decision point that comes up. Um, and it really, the point of it is to enable people with diverse characteristics to use a product in a variety of different environments or circumstances um, and really make something that, you know, we all sort of talk about, which is something that everyone can use. And I know when we think about voice in particular, there are some really great use cases for access and in particular accessibility in the way that we kind of traditionally think about it um, with impairments and being able to aid people in that way. But the thing about voice is that conversation is just so social and it's embedded with all of these um, cultural aspects that a lot of times we just take for granted. So things like um, slang or colloquialisms or uh, cultural references and touch points, 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have uh, subculture memories or larger culture memories that are embedded in our in our conversation and the manners that we use. So all of this kind of becomes its own package and it can change from macro group to micro group. So if you're literally not speaking to someone in their own language, then they're not going to engage with you and they're not going to engage with your product and they're going to stop using it. And obviously all of us want to make something that people use and that makes their lives better. So it's really important for voice to think about how you're including or excluding people to make sure that the product that you're making is getting used by the people who you want to use it. I think it's good to point out that accessibility is a piece of it, but a lot of times we think of accessibility as building a ramp into a building or color contrast on a screen. And and those are physical limitations that, that folks may have that we want to uh, support. But we're also talking about the the cultural experiences that enable people to communicate and, and those differences. So it's it's a bit more than just accessibility in that sense. And I, I like I like your definition. So thank you for for giving us that outline. And you mentioned a few of them. So let's dive into a little bit of detail on some of these. So uh, you, you mentioned a few of the challenges, but what do you see the top challenges are that affect users when it comes to inclusivity in voice? So I kind of break them out into three sort of categories for myself, one being um, physical challenges. So that's where you're thinking about your traditional um, speech impediments or, or even accents, but stuff that is more about the the actual voice or um, the forming of speech and the way it gets delivered. Um, then there are cultural challenges, which is more kind of like what I was talking about before with the different um, words that you're using and references and manners and all that kind of stuff. And then there are platform or channel challenges. So thinking about access in terms of who are my users and what platform do they use? Are they even in this channel or do they want to be? And that kind of questioning can be, um, can be another path that you can go down. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, the cultural ones are the most interesting. We, we often do think about all right, our, our accents and, and the physical intonation of, of somebody speaking to a voice uh, technology as something that kind of the platform itself typically is going to take care of when we think of the voice assistants in particular like Alexa and Google uh, because a lot of that is handled at, at the core platform level. And then any third-party experiences benefit from uh, those technologies at the core. So let's focus on the cultural ones and give us a couple examples of what cultural uh, inclusive design might look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So one is just like regionality. (laughs) So if you think about like the way that we speak in different parts of this country, not even thinking globally, if we just take the U S and we think about the way somebody speaks in the Southeast versus the way somebody speaks in the Northeast. So we don't even have to get off the East coast. It's so different. So the pace at which they speak is much different. Northeasterners mm-hmm. tend to speak much more quickly. And obviously we have a whole, um, pretty solid image. I think in all of our minds of the pace at which Southerners speak. And there's colloquialisms like, um, my favorite one is, Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the Northeast. That is a, 
a much more aggressive way of saying bless your heart. Um, <laughs> and it, it just sort of reflects back the, the existing social structure in each of those areas. And if you were to use the vulgarity from the Northeast and the South, like that would just be way over the top. But if you were to say, bless your heart in the Northeast, then people would not quite follow necessarily what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So like these, just the, the pure like colloquialism bit of it changes region to region. And then depending on the group that you have in the region, it could it could be something that exists for the most of that population, but in a subgroup of that population doesn't exist. So thinking about, um, well, there's one, (laughs) one time that I was designing something for some people who were in Ohio and the persona that we created was really friendly. And the idea was this was going to be somebody who was reaching out via phone on behalf of, a physician to help people get like their annual physical scheduled. And this is something that's covered for everybody under it, all the insurances during a time when I think the, uh, the affordable care act had just passed and everybody, almost everybody was on insurance. So this was like, okay, let's get people in, get them a relationship with their physicians. And, uh, I had, instead of really doing my research and this was a lesson in that, I went off of the data that had been given to me, which was from clinicians who were not necessarily boots on the ground. And I got the information that, okay, this is a very basic um, traditional Midwestern group of people. They like friendly they like um, convenience. So yeah, like write something around that. That sounds fine. And the language I used was, you know, I know you're busy, so let me take this off your plate and get you scheduled for this appointment, which I think under normal circumstances might've been fine. Um, but the problem is that I didn't do research. So I didn't really understand who the users were. And there was a large population of immigrants from, I want to say, I know it was an Eastern African country. I don't remember which one. And they had been, they had emigrated because of a food shortage. So the concept of somebody saying to them, I will take food off your plate was threatening. It was not friendly. Mm. And I quickly realized that that was, we were seeing a lot of people dropping off and we were able to track that and realize that, Oh, that language is not translating. I thought it was friendly and it is actually just confusing to people and, you know, confusing at best and threatening at worst. So was able to change that. But I think that is another like point that even when you think you, you might know kind of the macro group, you still need to take a look at what that group is really made up of to ensure that you're speaking to everybody in a language that everybody can understand. That's really, really interesting story and really difficult because you can't possibly know every single person, right? And it's how, how do you collect that kind of information ahead of time? to potentially cover every single case. Um, And and I think we have to acknowledge that there will certainly be gaps at the end of the day, but there's lots of stuff that we can do to help identify these things ahead of time. Um, So that's a really good example of something that that didn't go so well. But what kinds of things can we do with our designs to to counteract as we think about the scripts or uh, our users early and often? how, How do we identify when we're using colloquialisms or, or phrases that may not 
makes sense in the right context um, because often they're so second nature. We don't always even know that they're colloquialism. Sometimes we think, oh, that's a strange thing to say if you really step back and th- look at it. But it, it makes total sense if you just say it. Yeah, I've actually I've taken myself through an exercise. And certainly after that, I was like hyper aware of every time I was writing something that wasn't just straight up plain English, like as crystal clear as it could possibly be. And I think I probably erred more on the side of less personality. So I'm finally starting to come back into the middle. <laughs> um, I took myself through an exercise of writing out whatever sort of friendly phrase I thought it was in my head and then writing out like five to 10 different ways that I could possibly say that. Mm. And usually when I would do that, I would sort of look at it and be able to step back and be like, Oh, Oh, I see. No, there is a clearer way to say that. Um, always bringing in other people too is a great way to kind of check yourself. Cause sometimes we, you know, to your point, we can't see our biases. It, they just exist. And until they're pointed out to us, I don't think we're aware of them. And I would oftentimes check things. Um, I think I tried to use something like hunky dory or like some sort of, uh, Sarah Palin-esque folksyism that was uh, <laughs> too far, too far down that road. But I after, it was after this um, take food off your plate instance where I don't think I would have caught it otherwise. And then I read it out loud and was like, wait a second, there might, I don't know that everybody's going to understand that. And I ran that by just like people out in the hallway to see what their reaction was to that. And of like the five sort of random people that I polled who all work in the same area as me, live in the same area as me. There were a couple that didn't know that. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good indicator because this is already in a, in an area that has a lot of um, commonalities with my background. So Mm -hmm. if this is not reading here, it's definitely going to not read out in the world. That, that, so I have a similar story where I was given a talk in Germany and I used the term willy nilly, which <laughs> some people will know what that means, but it just means kind of haphazardly, right? You just, you're just sort of doing something without thinking very carefully about it. And <laughs> so I looked at people's faces and they're all kind of like their heads kind of all turn a little bit like what? Um, and I stopped, I was like, I'm sorry. I just used a term that none of you probably understand. Right. And, and it was really interesting. I got that immediate feedback, but, um, and they had a little moment of fun with that too. But, uh, what about wanting to use those kinds of things though, for, uh, on purpose, right. To build a brand or to build some kind of persona that your, your brand tries to embody is, is it okay to still try to push that a little bit or how do you balance that? Yeah, I think so. I think it depends on two things. One is your brand and who your brand is. And the other is, um, you know, what, what level of information are you trying to get across? Like if this is a crucial piece of information and you need to tell people that they should not be like haphazardly investing their money and you say willy nilly investing their money, then that might be um, kind of a higher stakes situation where you want to pull back on the the personality and the, the way you're describing it mm-hmm. to make sure that it's clear versus it's fun. And then if your brand is not aligned with that, then it doesn't make sense to like this. This happens a lot. I think where we 
my company does a lot of work with financial institutions and banks are traditionally pretty straight laced. Like there aren't a lot of, um, to use another (laughs) phrase that is probably not understandable by everybody, loosey goosey. Like they're just not very, um, flexible and fun that you don't think of them as the guy in the backwards baseball cap at the party that you're at. Like they're definitely the dad coming home. (laughs) So you, you want to take that under consideration when you're, you know, like you would with any persona, a lot of times the marketing and brand departments have already done a lot of the work for you in defining who the brand is. And it's just taking that list of characteristics and that place in the market and translating that into a personality that makes sense for that, that place and that, um, that work that the, the team has already done so that you're not creating a persona or a personality or any kind of verbiage that would relate to those that fights against that. Cause that's where people get confused. If all of a sudden their, their banking app is saying like, what up, bro? I think I got your money. Like that's, not great. That doesn't make me trust that this bank knows what they're doing or that they're actually doing what I want them to do with my money. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that the branding is there. I mean, not everybody has branding when we think about smaller scale voice experiences, which is the majority Mm -hmm. of what's being built today outside of what agencies might be building. Um, There's still a lot of room for that growth. Um, But a lot of people that I talk to are one person shops or building them kind of for fun on on the side. And so it's always a little bit interesting to see how much thought and how they can apply these lessons uh, into their experiences and how they're building them ahead of time without having to wait for things like you described falling, people falling off of the the experience or negative reviews on, on the, the app stores or whatever to, to be able to identify, Oh, this is something that's causing trouble. Um, although yeah. that, is important to be able to track. At least if you have that, you you at least have a better chance of finding when you are losing people for possibly these kinds of reasons. Yeah, I think um, so. To that end, you know, just sort of knowing who you want to be listening to this is always a good place to start. And I know everybody always wants to start with like, well, I want this to be for everyone, and that's awesome. Um, but it does help, I think, especially when you are a one-person team, of thinking about okay yes, I want this to be for everyone. And is there a way that I could like, are there specific groups that I can think about first that might help me figure out sort of the scope of what I mean by everyone? Because I think everybody has a different idea of that in their head. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think that you do have to make everything for everyone. It doesn't always make sense to do that. So defining that for yourself. And there's um, kind of gut check that my colleague, Alana Shalowitz, uh, she and I used to work together. We would do this to each other all the time. We would just ask who's here, who isn't, and are we okay with that? And I think that's just a good place to start of like, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't make sense if you're creating something for, um, for people who smoke, like, I don't know if Marlboro is making a voice app, are they really making it for everyone? Or are they making it for everyone who smokes? So like, it just, it doesn't make sense to actually make it for everybody. You have to just define what that looks like for yourself and then go listen to the way that they're having conversations. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're right about if you understand the, the users that you are really interested in. And then I think there's still ways to try to address it in a way that's still inclusive without maybe targeting 
right? That maybe there's a yeah. difference there, and and that comes with careful consideration of terms and and and. The, one of the challenges with, especially with voice assistants or even IVR, is if someone calls into a phone line or someone invokes it on their Alexa devices, that you you have no idea what their background is. They could mm-hmm. be in a foreign country, because um, you know English is natively supported pretty much everywhere, even if uh, they're in a country that doesn't have native language support. So you just don't know the background in most cases. So. You know, you've got to maybe hold that back, I think, is another possibility. Mm-hmm. You hold back some of that branding until you've established rapport or you've established a foundation with that person and maybe ease into it rather than throwing it all out there at the beginning. How do you think about that? So I think that if you need to, you know, we all want to have some set of kind of personality or brand with it. But again, trying to think about how clearly am I stating this is really helpful and Thinking about the pace at which you're speaking is another way to be a little bit more inclusive. So, you know, like we talked about, people in the, at least in the U.S. and the South speak slower than in the North. If you have something that's going at a pretty quick clip, it's going to be really difficult cognitively for people who speak at a slower pace to really parse that and like pay attention to it, respond in a timely fashion. A lot of times the response we get is that, that feels really rushed to me. I, I couldn't keep up with it. And likewise, on the flip side, if you've got somebody who's used to speaking a little faster and the voice pattern is going much slowly, much more slowly, then you are irritating them and they're not patient with it. They want to get out of there. So thinking about like, okay, well, can we, how do we accommodate both of those groups? Because those are pretty opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, and a lot of times just simple stuff like you could keep it at sort of the quicker pace, but have more enunciation and articulation in the voice you're actually using, which sometimes means using a voiceover artist instead of using the TTS. But it allows you to kind of accommodate in some regard a little bit of both so that until you know who your users really are, like at least where they are, that you can you can tune that a little bit more as you move forward. But at least it gives you a starting place where you're, you're doing your best to accommodate everybody. And by the same token, yeah, you're not going to get everybody's language. You're not going to get everybody's reference points at the beginning, but you can question the ones that you're putting in. You can think about like, is this a reference point that truly everyone has? Um, one example of that is my husband's friends were talking about commando and they were shocked that like, None of the women in the room, particularly any of the women of color, had heard of, watched this movie. Like, some of us didn't even know what it was. And they had to explain, like, oh, well, it's this, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from the 80s. It's amazing. How have you never seen this? But, like, basic stuff like that that may seem to you kind of like, oh, yeah, this is a reference point that everybody has. It's that same kind of idea of backing off of it, writing out those five examples or ten examples of the colloquialism. Same kind of thing with the reference points? Are there ways that you can make lists for yourself or run them by other people to really determine if those are are as inclusive as you think they are? Do you have any other suggestions like that? So you've got writing out several variations of the same thing to see kind of the different ways that it can be said and find possible colloquialisms hidden throughout. Uh, Do you have other techniques to identify those things? Yeah. I mean, this is a really, it's a little creepy, um, but it works really well, (laughs) but it's, eavesdropping on people. Um, and I mean that like, don't go stalking people, but just 
like sitting at a, a bus stop or in a coffee shop or someplace where real people are, particularly if you are trying to, you know, make this as inclusive as possible, you might want to go outside of your normal spots to hear how different people speak to each other and write down exactly what they're saying. And the reason for that is thinking about like an art, they tell you, draw what you see, not what you think you see. And it's the same sort of application for any sort of dialogue writing, which is write what people say, not what you think they say. Mm-hmm. And a, writing down somebody's conversation allows you to see where they cut each other off, where what kind of words they're using, where they um, have non sequiturs or refer back to something else earlier in the conversation. All that kind of stuff is going to inform not only the structure and the functionality that you'll need in your voice bot in your system, but it also helps you figure out like what even are the are the manners that I need to include here? What are people expecting out of the conversation? Something as simple as allowing people to barge in is really kind of tricky because if you think about it, like it's just, it's interrupting and it's a power dynamic and you as a human usually feel like you are in the power position. And when the system gets switched over to being in the power position, it feels uncomfortable. I think that's why most users and I will include myself in this, get very frustrated when we're using a voice application and we get conversation repair messages that are like, I don't understand. Um, You need to rephrase that. Anything that makes it feel like the human messed up, that Mm. is sort of reinforcing that power position that the system has over the user. So you can just think about like, there are different instances where and different cultures where people will interrupt and it's perfectly fine. And there are others where they interrupt and it's not. So just considering what am I saying with this and what sort of seems to be the norm in the culture that I'm designing for in order to accommodate that. I think this idea of the system and and being uncomfortable with the dynamics of that is actually really, really important because it might be the same with uh, another human. You might be talking your students, you talk to the principal. It might not be a good conversation. Um, And and there's certainly power dynamics uh, and it's not just true for students and principals, but in many relationships, there is a little bit of that. Um, Even in close relationships, there may be from time to time And, and keeping track of that, and it, I, honestly, I agree. I, I have those moments where it's like, why can't it understand me? I just said it 10 times clearly, but it's it's missing out. And sometimes it blames me or it feels like it is. Um, and there's a lot of emotion to it. Um, I think you have a list of questions that you have written up that are pretty good ideas for things that you can ask yourself as you're working through a design or working through a voice experience to help identify if there's anything that you might be able to improve about it for inclusivity. Why don't we go through a couple of those and as examples of some of these questions and ways to review uh, before we close out the show? Yeah. So one of the ones that I do is um, would someone who's never used a Bowie product understand how to use this? Like that's sort of the test that I think a lot of people refer to as the like kindergarten or grandma test. Like would a kindergartner understand this? Would my grandma understand this? And I think the idea is just that that novice, that first time user coming through, how are you really making this um, interesting, engaging and easy to use for them, which 
of course, is like every design initial experience. We all try to do that. There are some people who have been in this for a very long time. And there are a lot of people who have been in this for a very short time mm-hmm. and trying to understand how we translate some of this information that we have from places like engineering or UX design or content writing of some kind and translating all of this into the stuff that people who've been around and doing this for a while understand. But even for them, they're on these new platforms and we're all sort of figuring out like everybody who uses this has only been using this for what, three years now, something like that. That's how long the 2015, yeah, three to four. So, I mean, our, our users, even when they're super excited about it, heavy users are still figuring out with us how it all works. And we all are learning from each other. Um, so really thinking about like, okay, this is not second nature in terms of using an artificial intelligence to have a conversation. It is very common nature to have a conversation though. So it's riding that line between what does somebody expect from, from a robot essentially. And what does somebody expect from a conversation? Mm. Because we expect a lot from a conversation and we don't know what to expect from bots. Uh, We anthropomorphize our devices very easily, very subconsciously. uh, And when social norms are broken, we're quickly going to jump on them as uh, failures. And I guess a lot of people from some of the research I've seen actually have low expectations. So when they break social cues or, or things are, suboptimal for whatever reason, people are kind of like, well, okay, it's just a bot. Uh, but that expectation is going to keep rising and getting higher and higher. And I think as you described with these things with inclusivity, that will continue to also increase as far as the number of people that you need to be able to accommodate in a given conversation and trying to balance that with your persona and your brand and your uh, overall experience is going to be more and more challenging. But some of these questions, you, if someone has never used it before, how would they perceive it? Uh, you have another one about uh, what kinds of assumptions might I be making, essentially. And those are really hard to tease out because you're trying to answer a question that you should have thought of before you wrote it all down, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's, but that's what makes humans different is that we can have thoughts about our thoughts and analyze it, maybe give it to today and, and see it in a new light. So uh, I, I think you've got good advice here around all of the things that we can do for inclusivity and essentially just being more critical of what we write and sharing that with others to get feedback quick and early and often rather than uh, waiting to see when you ship it, if people are falling off uh, the experience at some point. Yeah. I, um, if you don't have a user researcher in your life, I would highly recommend befriending one. Um, that was probably the most eye-opening experience I had for me. It was really working with somebody who is trained in this kind of thing of of assumptions and breaking things down and understanding who, who the audience is investigating who they are and and teaching me that how I could look through even simple things like chat rooms online, where I don't even have to go outside. I can just see how people are communicating with, from the comfort of my own home. Um, and showing me where I was making assumptions on things really, really helped. So if you, know anybody or like can join a a slack or follow people on Twitter. It's so useful to have somebody who's trained in that on your side and, and helping you figure that stuff out. Certainly. Um, we're at the 
close of our show here, the section I like to call endpoint detection. So before we get to kind of the last few questions here, let's look at the top takeaway from today related to inclusivity and voice design. Yeah. Um, so inclusivity is, I think is, especially in voice is really understanding your audience and their lives, how they are, how they are behaving and how they are communicating. And I think for that, that just means if you're in a position of power, create an environment of curiosity where everybody can really be encouraged and empowered to ask questions and listen to the questions that are being asked and really have this, this curiosity around what are we creating and why are we creating it and who are we allowing into this experience? And if you're not in a position of power, then just really listening to your users so you can bring that data to the table with your team and have some backup when you do pose those questions and, and bring up these ideas. Excellent. So do you have an interesting voice experience that you've had recently? Yeah. Uh, I tried, somebody recommended the listeners. It's an Alexa skill. It's so weird. It's, (laughs) it's the, it's the craziest and like most fun skill that I played with because it's just like, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like creepy people listening in on you, but they want to talk about your feelings and then they're, they are just a we and they're everywhere. And it's very bizarre, but so innovative and I can't stop playing with it. Hmm. That's a new one. Uh, I have to check it out, but it seems like they're pushing the boundaries on, especially the emotional front or the social front of a voice there. Yeah, they are. It's it's not like anything I've ever experienced. All right. Another question. What resources do you recommend for people who want to learn about voice design? My go-to is always Kathy Pearl's book, Designing Voice User Interfaces. Um, it's so easy to read and I think really hits on all the the main points that you need going into to designing a buoy. That's probably the most popular suggestion. And uh, finally, last question, how can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah. Um, so I'm at Grand Studio and our website is grandstudio.com. Um, we're also Grand Studio Design on Twitter and Instagram. And I am also on Twitter on my own at Diana Does This. So anywhere there you can find out about usually what I'm doing, what I'm talking about, who I'm having conversations with. So you can eavesdrop on me too. <laughs> or start a conversation. I love those. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining today and talking about inclusivity. Uh, there's a lot of good insights here and things that we can take and actually put into our voice experience and our designs. Uh, so thank you for coming and joining me today. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked the show, please rate us on your favorite podcast player. All of the show notes are available on designforvoice.com.